When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is yet another meta episode, episode 342. What is board gaming and making a better hobby? We like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new meta episode. All right, so I know that we kind of said that was going to be a one-off, but turns out that this very special episode of Board Gamers Anonymous did have a part two. So we are bringing you yet a second, and I do promise this time this will be the, the last, unless unless things go completely out of, you know, the infinite finite curve or whatever else we're dealing with these days, but... Um, we are doing another episode where we're actually talking about the thing that we typically talk about. So, Anthony, hey, board games, man. That's a thing, right? We're back on it, right? So if you listened last <laughs> week and you're like, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about board games this week. We're not talking about... <laughs> last week, we talked about the act of talking about board games. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I, just, uh-huh. I, I had to slow down to say that because it was difficult to parse, but... Uh, this week it's, it's just the games themselves. So that'll be fun. Uh, I do want to say though, thank you to everybody who did follow up, sent emails, questions, comments, feedback. It was a lot of fun. I mean, we did that episode because we wanted to talk through it, but we also wanted to hear from you. And so it was really cool to have people write in and say, this is my favorite segment. This is a thing that I don't quite understand. This is a thing that I think would be really cool if you added all that stuff is awesome. If you haven't done that yet, do it. Because we are open books. You, you all know that. We change things, add things all the time based on what everybody requests. And it just it makes it fun for us. So mm-hmm. last week was a blast. And hopefully this week is also a blast. Absolutely. And again, it's one of those situations where we do feel like 
you know, everybody out there who's listening is part of our big friend group. And again, we always want to get everyone to the table. So part of that table conversation is opening to everyone else and have some feedback and some play with it, right? So when you're at your game night or your game day weekend or convention, what are you talking about and why are you talking about it? So we want to be able to bring that to you. And again, as Anthony said, let me also just add to that again. Thank you so much. I mean, for me too, this this means a lot that you're listening, that these things matter to you, that you know you have favorites and things you want to add. And again, it's you know speaking into the infinite void. But it turns out the infinite void has a lot of cool people on the other side. So um, <laughs> super awesome to hear from all of you. And, and again, I know there's many of you out there that are listening and like in your car or at the gym or weird random situations. And just don't have an opportunity to, to text back. But in some way, we hear you and we appreciate it. And again, thank you to everyone who responded. Thanks to everyone who supports us. Thanks to everyone who gets the word out. And obviously, our Patreon backers who make this financially possible. Because, again, it's a, it's a thing. So if you are listening to Board Gamers Anonymous for the very first time and you're like, Hey, huh, what is, what, why? So... We're doing an episode about board gaming, which obviously seems a little down the line for us, but we're actually talking about board gaming as like a concept. And last week we talked about podcasting as a concept. But again, if you're looking for your standard episodes, that'll be back next week or one of the 340 episodes we've done previously. So (laughs) feel free to jump back, get a sense of what we do and how we do it. And join us as we get everyone to the table. So again, we are talking about board gaming in a more kind of reflective, philosophical point of view. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun because every once in a while you have to stop and go, but wait a minute, board gaming? And that's what we're doing here. And we're going to talk about some things that we've seen in the hobby and maybe hopefully how we can make the hobby a little bit better and hopefully how... Uh, your gaming will be a little bit better as well. So thank you so very much for all of those things. So Anthony, are we going to rehash, review, and take a look at what's going on in the board gaming industry as a general news item? Or are we going to say everything's burning, dear God, dear God, everything's burning, (laughs) and move on? Yeah, I don't know. Like We had this on the to-do list for last week, and we're like, Uh you know what? Let's keep it positive and just talk about us. (laughs) Okay. Let's... Let's be positive. Let's like reaffirm ourselves, and so we, we stuck with it. But yeah, the board gaming industry, man, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but it's not happy news. So the 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 two big things on our list that we we put up there last week. So maybe some of you already know all this is Tasty Minstrel Games and IDW Games. Both of them are are calling it quits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of them is kind of quasi borderline bankruptcy, and the other one is just like we're out. IDW is obviously a bigger company. They do comics and mm-hmm. books and other things, and they're just getting out of the gaming industry. But it's sad, right? Like, both of those companies have a decent history. Most of the time we've been in the hobby, have some really yeah. good games, have some really, really good IPs in the case of IDW, and it's just oh, yeah? it's not working for whatever reason. Which is really weird because, and again, without getting into the endless numbers that... Anthony and I tend to love, but maybe you're not as interested in is the board gaming industry has been huge and it's only growing. And as, as part of the hobby toy industry, I mean, board gaming has really exploded and obviously 
especially because of the pandemic, you know, cheap, easy, fun at home with the family, you can't do much better than board gaming. So it's kind of surprising, Anthony, to actually see these companies kind of roll up the carpet. As you said, with IDW, they've always had these really immensely popular IPs and always kind of produce these generic, average, okay games. And Tasty Minstrel Games has been the other side. They've been literally all over the place. I don't believe they had anything particular interesting about their IPs, but they did have uh, Orleans, which is a tremendously phenomenal game. And they've had some other good games and then some other oddities here and there. But I, I think on their end, their company has had so many problems and they've caused them. They've honestly, yeah. their, their leadership <laughs> yeah. has been problematic. Yeah. Yeah. There was the whole mold issue. There's been issues with, you know, getting games into stores. Yeah. They, I don't know what happened with Orleans. I know they lost the license, but I don't know if that yeah. was like a premeditated thing or if that's, they lost the license and that just further hurt them financially. Um, but Capstone's publishing that now here in the U S yeah. So it seems just like things just kind of crumbled a bit and it's, I'm not super surprised that one of the things that's especially like you look at any industry as it grows and the larger it gets, the more you think like, well, how can companies fail? It's so big and so huge and so popular, but the bigger it gets, the higher the expectations get. Like you have come, you know, you get Barnes and Nobles and targets and Walmart's coming to you. And like, we want this, we want this. You need to meet our expectations as this big box store. And these really small mom and pop companies are like, yeah, we can do that. And they can't. And I'm not, again, that no one's saying that that's what happened here, but that's why we see so many mergers. That's why you see so many things rolling up is because, you know, it's not easy for a small company to come in and meet those expectations. Now, plenty of them do it. We have Gloomhaven in target. And that's up until two years ago, that was one guy in his house running a company and he made it work. Uh, But it does get harder as it gets bigger. And that's a big part of it. The expectations get higher. The scale gets higher. Like, Failure by lack of scale is that affects every industry. Like some of the mm-hmm. most effective and successful, you know, startups in history crashed and burned because they grew too fast and they sure. didn't have the people in place or the systems in place to manage that growth. So the board game industry growing by, you know, X hundred percent over the last five years is great for all of us, but maybe not so great for some companies that couldn't keep up. Yeah, and I, I think that's true across the board. And, and I, again, I, I believe that we will, and we probably have already seen a lot of companies just quietly disappear and evaporate. Because remember, we've been around for over eight years and even longer than that as far as the board gaming industry is concerned. And I think there was so many more companies. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the mergers are a thing, but Anthony, there was so many companies and we just forgot their names. They just, they honestly just evaporated. Tasty Minstrel Games, for so many reasons, they're, they're whole, everybody in there, everyone top and bottom. I mean, I, and I can't say specifically everyone, I'm just being, you know, going a little bit extreme here, but they've had so many internal leadership and staffing issues and things like that, that it's not terribly surprising that they kind of crumbled, but it's very sad because um, there was some tremendous products there. And you had, you know, look, you also had companies like Smirk and Dagger, you know, and, you know, one man show. And somehow, you know, when you used to go to Tasty Minstrel Games, everyone there, 
everyone was miserable. You go to Smirk and Dagger games and they're like, we all got tattoos of the company logo. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, Kurt, I get it. Kurt. Yeah, yeah I get yeah. it. He's um, making it work. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's really it's opposite ends of the spectrum. And if you've ever been to a convention, you probably got that vibe where it's the happiest place on earth or it's it's, you know, suicide watch. It's it's just yeah. not it's it's honestly like they hate they hate their job. They hate themselves. And they've done some, you know, it's it's really sad. It's just because, you know, Tasty Minstrel and IDW, as Anthony said, like they've been around for a while and they've and they've been solid you know, solid producers of games. And it's really sad to see them both go, especially as the industry continues to contract. And I know that some, as you said, Anthony, like some of that's just industries that that's just a normal process and procedure, but it, for a very long time, board gaming was not like that. Board gaming had this kind of Renaissance period where everyone was creating, everyone was designing, everyone was producing, everyone was sharing. And now we're in a radically different, you know, structure. It really is. It really, really is. It's no longer the mom and pop situation is, is radically different. So yeah. And well, obviously we'll talk a little bit more about that in our feature review talking about board gaming, but yeah, I think it's something that we should mention And again, I don't want to get into some of the other deep and dark and, and evil and twisted yeah. stuff, but um, you know, one of the interesting things about any industry as Anthony's talking about, is that sometimes it does get stagnant and some of that's because there isn't diversity. And again, um, you can argue whatever you want to argue about diversity, but diversity does something very good, which is it, it lets the sunshine in, it lets the airflow it, the diversity brings in new ideas and new thoughts and new feelings and new people. So it's not a select group that's, you know, has this kind of like, mentality that just kind of unfortunately recycles to the point of just getting sad and dark and corrupt in some kind of ways. So Broken Token, who's a company that we've reviewed their products for many years. And I've actually, I knew the, the owner and his wife, Uh, we've had some dealings with them. And again, that's a longer story for another day, I guess, but um, some tremendously horrible allegations have come out recently and substantial support has come out to, you know, it seems to show that that actually these things have happened, that the owner Greg was, and again, it's hard to go to any details and all that stuff is online, but there was a lot of serious, a lot of harassment, a lot of sexual harassment, a lot of abuse and a lot of other things. And as somebody who owns a lot of their products and stuff to that nature, it's just, it, it honestly breaks your heart and it really does because like you, you love the industry, you love the products and a lot of times you love the people and to, to believe that there's um, this woman and and other people, not just this one individual, but multiple people that were abused in the, in in an organization and groups you love is heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. And and my heart, and I know Anthony too, our hearts go out to all those have been taken advantage of. And sadly enough, it's the ones you don't know that are really the, probably the ones that are in most danger or have been in most danger. And there's been, this has not been the only one. There's been multiple companies and there's been multiple people in the industry over the last couple of years have come out and thank God for the brave souls who've come out and had the strength to uh, tell their story so that they could protect others. And, you know, our blessings and our hopes and prayers and our support in any way possible goes with them. And I, and I think it's fair to say that we won't be, you know, reviewing or supporting 
in any way, not that we really ever have, but broken token products in the future, because I know that there's been some change in leadership, but still the owner is the owner and still the money's going there. And I think even other companies that we've talked about in the past, uh, it's great that you're making changes. That's awesome. But it's also you're profiting, you know, still. So I, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to split hairs there, Anthony. I don't know about, do you know any, what do you think? Yeah, no, this stuff is always hard. Um, and it's not unique to the board game industry. No, uh, unfortunately, this not. is endemic to society. But yep. it, it's important for us to think about it because it's easy to get into the mindset of it's gaming, it's a hobby, it's fun. You know, I don't want to think about this stuff. Or, yeah. you know, this happens a lot with media, for example, like somebody who says reprehensible things or does reprehensible things produces something that you enjoy. And like, what's the answer to that? Do you continue to consume that thing or do you boycott it and ignore it and don't give money into that person's pocket? And I've always been of the belief. And I think you're with me on this is that if that money is going to get back to that person who does the reprehensible things, it says reprehensible things, then I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to, you know, help them live their lifestyle off the back of what they've done. And it's not different at the smaller scale. I don't think it is, and I don't think it should be. So I think it's good to have these conversations, even if some people are like, why do we have to talk about these things in my hobby? You know, (laughs) this isn't politics. This isn't, you know, there's no left or right or liberal or conservative on this. It's just humanity. And the bottom line is that sometimes people don't live up to the ideals of humanity. And I think we need to call them on that and, and respond in kind. And so this is one of those situations. Yeah. And I think just like if you were walking down the street and you saw someone be assaulted, obviously you don't want to get involved, but obviously you are involved because you know, it's a situation that occurs in your venue location or in your site. And you have to be, because that's who we are. You know, Um, this hobby is about people first and foremost, more than it is about board games. It's about board gamers. That's why it's board gamers anonymous, not board games anonymous. So we support those people. Uh, as you said, Anthony, you know, death of the author and stuff is, is a great conversation for another day, of course. But especially, you know, to continue to support people who've done those things, I think that's that's where we have to draw the line. And, uh, and again, it doesn't take away from the hobby. It doesn't take away from the fun. It doesn't take away from the products you already own. But moving forward, we won't be supporting anybody that we find doing these reprehensible things, these crimes. I mean, they're yeah. straight out crimes. And that's that's sad. you know. And we talked about last week doing the podcast for so many years and how much investment we put into it. And I could show you a thousand pictures. And Anthony and I have a thousand stories. But like, you know as podcasters for the board game industry, we're next level. Like we, we've really, <laughs> we've really invested. So yeah. So let's, let's be great to each other. Let's support each other and let's have a good time together. But we, you know, as we say, we want everyone to join the table. So let's look out for each other. I think that comes first and foremost. All right. So that's, what's going on in the news. Let's get on to the question of the week. Anthony, yes, yes. let's talk about what? something fun and let's talk about what our listeners are talking about. What do you have for us this week? Yes, this is a much lighter topic. Uh, so I, I asked everybody a few days ago. Literally anything is lighter. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, we could have asked him about this topic, but we did not. Um, <laughs> we did not. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of conversation out there about that if you want to get into the weeds on it. Uh, sure. But getting lighter, getting more back to board games. I asked people, what's the best game you can set up and teach in less than 15 minutes? So, ah, so literally a light game is what you're saying. Literally a light game, although some people uh-huh. thought it was funny to give me much heavier games. So, wah, wah, wah. yeah, <laughs> there's always there's always someone. Sometimes there's multiple someones. Uh, so, not a you know, we'll just I'll list off a few of these here by the people who post them because there's not a lot of details here. But Tommy mentions Lost Cities, the card game. Uh, Tim mentions Water Lily for non-gamers and Paris Connection for gamers. I like that distinction because I think it's important. Because uh, a game that you could teach in 15 minutes for gamers, maybe you would take much longer to teach for non-gamers. Uh, I've certainly had that experience. Um, Tom mentions, hey, that's my fish. That's a favorite of mine. I love to hey, that's my fish. Uh, AC mentions Azul, um, which is fantastic, I think, across the board, both for gamers and non-gamers. And it really is relatively quick to teach. For pure non-gamers, Azul is a little harder just because there are some concepts in there that are based on existing game knowledge, but even still, I taught it to my kids. I've taught it to my wife. I've taught it to in-laws. Uh, it, it works well. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Uh, other answers here. We've got Brian mentions Dairyman. Andre mentions a few games, uh, Ride the Rails and Irish Gage. Um, he really likes to use cube rail games to teach uh, with his group, which are actually very good. They seem like they're going to be heavy, but they're really not. They're like 45 minute train games that take like 10 minutes to teach. Uh, John mentions uh, the Fox in the Forest or the Crew. Uh, I think the Crew might be a little tough if people don't already know trick-taking games because then you have to teach them trick-taking and then the Crew on top of that. Mm -hmm. But for existing gamers, it's a good one. Uh, We've got Forbidden Island, Crokinole, Catacombs, uh, Zombie Dice. Uh, Let's see here. Peter mentions for his, you know, gamer people that he plays with, uh, Blood Rage. Uh, But again, that's kind of taking into account that people already know certain mechanisms like area control and, and drafting code names, Mysterium, seven wonders, century spice road. Um, the game I'm going to talk about later today, Cascadia David mentions as a simple setup and teach is now become his go-to gateway game. Uh, George mentions love letter. And then Damien mentions Rose King. So it's a lot of these can be gateway games, but some of them aren't. I think really it's just a matter of like, what game, if you had a limited amount of time, where you're like, we have an hour, and someone's like, this game takes an hour? It's like, yeah, an hour plus 40 minutes to teach it. So no. Like, what game could you legit get done in an hour with the time you have? So uh, lots of good answers. <laughs> if you're looking for some games to play quickly with gamers or non-gamers, check out the Facebook thread. Nice. Do you have Do you have anything special, Anthony, that you think actually might be a long situation, but you could actually get it set up to play? <sighs> I don't know. It's it's always hard to divorce the gamers from non-gamers on this question. I think it is important True. to do that yeah. because a lot of games, like there's a lot of games I could set up quickly and we could play with, you know, people who understand games, right? Yeah. Pretty much any worker placement game. You're like, here's the board. Here's what all the actions do. Go, right? Gotcha. Like, there's no, you know, anything. But if someone's never played a worker placement game, you're like, okay. Step one, here's a worker, <laughs> you know, uh, it, you have to really roll it back a lot. Um, so, yeah, I don't I think a lot of these are good answers. I don't think I have a better answer personally. I'm not great at this one. I like I feel like I'm always the guy who brings the big. It's going to take forever. Uh, 
but I do own a lot of these games. So they're certainly, you know, I'm able to accommodate the non-gamers and family in my life. Yeah, I think for me, the game that seems impossible to set up and teach in 15 minutes, but I've actually done it, is Dinosaur Island. And oh, yeah. that's, that's mainly one. because the boards itself yep. actually tell you what's going to happen. And it's really like, you know, first you do this board, then you do this board, and then you do that board, right? And it's it's pretty much laid out. So other than putting the dice out to start with, everything else can kind of just hang out. Right. Like it doesn't really come into play like, oh, yeah, you put a couple of cards out, but it's never really like a big load. Right. Once you get into digging into the dinosaurs based on what you want. But that's been a game that like gamers or non-gamers. Look, here's one section. You you, you roll the dice, you pick the dice. This is the other section. You, you, you get the cards and then you do the things like I like that game. I, I think that game does something very smart that I've never seen. And also you could play it short because you could play the short version of it too so it allow it does allow you to play with non-gamers and play a quick game of it so you could just teach the game in some cases so yeah dinosaur island you would not think it considering all the stuff that comes in the box but play the base (laughs) game play the short version and you're in and out and then that's something that's really good great to the table it's literally one of the only games on my shelf where it says you know 90 to 120 minutes and you're like yep that's about right yeah (laughs) absolutely it might maybe even a little bit shorter yeah, I don't recommend the, sh- the short game for gamers. I like the long version of it because you get to build right. up your dinosaur park. But yeah, if you're trying to play that, absolutely. All right, so that's what's happening with our question of the week. Again, we would love for you to join us and we'd love to hear from you. So the, the question of the week can be found on Facebook, on Twitter. And again, there's endless numbers of places where you can find Board Gamers Anonymous. Anthony recently told me that I actually can ask my Alexa play board gamers anonymous the podcast and it'll actually do that so hopefully it doesn't just start turning that on as you're listening to this but (laughs) that was pretty cool because i i kind of showed it to my family and they were like huh and i'm like this is a thing so i i guess it's a thing so yeah woo! waiting for that bezos money to come in now Ooh, excited uh <laughs> yeah, because he shares his money. Yeah, that's a guy who shares money. <laughs> he shares his money with a free podcast that he gets to put on each and every week now. So that's going to push him over the top. You know that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We're we're the we're that last nickel that knocks the whole stack over. We're gonna get a. Hey, I love that game. That's a great game. So all right, so yeah, please do hit us up anywhere, anyhow, any place. Anthony somehow has a connection to all of these things. Again, feel free to whisper into your iPhone and somehow we'll hear that too, because I don't know, Apple, right? Am I right? Am I right folks? All right. So let's get on to the games that we want to get to the table and hopefully you want to get to the table. Let's Anthony talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. So this one uh, popped up actually in a Facebook thread uh, and I just randomly found it on Kickstarter as a result. (gasps) So the company that made, if you've played solar storm, which is a cooperative kind of, card game based on escaping the sun <laughs> um, uh, that came out last year. It was a Kickstarter game previously. They have a new game called Solar Sphere, which is a competitive kind of tableau builder type of uh, dice-based worker placement game. And so it's more Euro-ish, whereas their first game was competitive. It was short. It was like 30 to 60 minutes. This one's a little bit longer, 60 to 90, a little more complex, and uh, has a lot more mechanics going on in it. And so in the game, you have 
dice that you're going to roll. And then these are going to correlate to, you know, your own personal player board and the actions you get to take. Um, you get to call in like specific benefits and, and favors from the corporation based on the dice you roll. Uh, there are going to be additional um, actions you can take using not only your own ships, which are the dice, but also drones that you're going to gain based on your initial rolls. And so you're going to place these out on different cards and locations throughout the game, and it's going to activate certain things. You're going to generate resources. You're going to be able to use these things. Ultimately, you're trying to build a sphere, right? So it's your typical corporation in space building a giant thing, right? <laughs> and so in this case, you're building a Dyson sphere. You're trying to wrap a big giant sphere around a sun to capture the energy from the sun. Nice. And you're trying to do the best version of that. So, you know, this is kind of in the genre of terraforming Mars-like games where we're all doing the same thing, but we're competing to do it better than each other. And <laughs> it's got, like, looking through the artwork, looking through the, the basic layout, it's very nice to look at. It's got original artwork and, like, these you know, paintings of this, you know, sci-fi world and these various crazy-looking characters um, you can hire a different crew to join you. They give you different benefits and all different sorts of alien races mixed in here, which is very cool. So it's not just like earthlings going off and, and finding a sun to capture. It's like, no, you're off in deep space and there's anybody and everybody out there. Uh, and so it's, it's fun. I like dice based worker placement games. Um, I like being able to activate things and pull in different resources based on the locations I go to and like having things chained together. Uh, it's an interesting looking game. So I have my eyeballs peeled on this one. It is saved. I have not backed it yet, but um, I am looking into it because uh, I'm, I'm very on the fence about it. It checks a lot of boxes. I just want to you know, get a sense of how it actually plays. But if you're looking for this type of game, if you like the you know heavier sci-fi, but Euro-ish game, it's a little more colorful. It's a little more engaging than uh, some of the other sci-fi games you see out there then check out Solar Sphere. So it's on Kickstarter right now. I think it just went up a couple days ago. Uh, but there are, you, at the base level pledge, it's like $45, I think. You get the base hmm. game and the, and the bonuses. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's Kickstarter, so you can get the upgraded pack, which comes with the expansion, <laughs> or you can get the super upgraded pack with the expansion and the playmat. Um, and then they do also have Solar Storm up there, too, if you're interested. So looks cool. I'm excited to try this one out. Are, will you be backing this? Are you going? To, are you going that far, or are you just? I'm I'm very very on the fence about it. Like I found this today when I was mm -hmm. prepping for the episode, and I was like, "Ooh, I think I want to back that." And I just didn't have the time to watch like a gameplay playthrough sure. yet. Uh, but dice placement is like really high on my list of mechanics, and it seems to be done well here. And I really like the aesthetic; it's very colorful, but interesting and creative. Um, I just love the idea of you're a corporation in like some far off futuristic galaxy building a Dyson sphere, you know, in the end of the day, it just comes down to like economics, just like terraforming Mars. We're like, <laughs> yeah, we're exploring, but really we're trying to make some money. So gotcha. um, yeah, no, I'll probably end up backing it, you know, assuming there's nothing wonky, you know, that comes up or if it doesn't seem like a good fit, but I'm interested for sure. Yeah. I, I think, sci-fi games because they're supposed to be so you know for, forgive the pun here i mean they're supposed to be so alien right that's the idea right. of sci-fi games right they're so futuristic that 
you can't possibly imagine what things will look like, not to mention that you can't possibly imagine what aliens will look like. So when any time a sci-fi game comes out, I'm very interested because I want to see how far they're really going to go. Is this just going to be a retread of Star Trek or Star Wars or something we've seen before? Or is the artwork going to be so gaudy that you're just going to be like, yeah, no, right? It's just like, no, I don't, I don't, wherever you went with this, I don't want to go boldly where where you went. So this is a weird mix. If you take a look at, as you said, Anthony, the the board itself having really an interesting abstract depiction of the Dyson Sphere here and, and playing out that Euro game is pretty cool. The artwork, they went for it. I don't think yep. it's bad. I, I think it's actually pretty. I, I think that they ride the line between something being really alien and out there, but also being extremely practical. I mean, I don't know if this is. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what sci-fi series this really matches with. It, it's it's a little more alien and out there than like the Expanse, but it it has a little bit of that kind of like real rugged, real world kind of thing. Maybe. Maybe Babylon 5, because that does Mm. have some kind of like technical element, but real aliens, aliens, just like as just normal people walking around, so to speak. So, yeah, I'm definitely interested as well. I don't know. Like you said, you have to see as far as how does it play? Because, again, it's one of those things where you do have a lot of cards in play. And when any game has a lot of cards. So if you're you're ever going to back a game and they're like, one of the big parts of this game is cards and you have to be like, huh, all right, <laughs> let's see how that deck rolls, right? Because that's that really makes all the difference in the world. That's Terraforming Mars in a nutshell. So, yeah, no, this yeah. is interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's cool looking. And it, it kind of reminded me of more, I guess, more like video games, like Master of Orion or something, just okay. in terms of like, you've got sure. all these different, and that's certainly not the mechanics here, but like all these different races, and they're all kind of mixing, and it's like a futuristic world, and everything's great, except it's not really under the surface, and... I don't know. I, I'm. I always like that a lot as a sci-fi trope of like a lived-in universe, but not not fantasy. It's pure sci-fi. It's not like Star Wars. It's like pure sci-fi, and things are crazy. You know, it's one of the reasons I love Twilight Imperium so much, and the theme is that's lived in. You know? Yeah, and this definitely has a Twilight Imperium kind of feel to it. It's it's got the yeah for sure yeah yeah absolutely. All right, well, I want to talk about a, a game that's currently on Kickstarter that I've had at least some experience with the other versions of it. And I'm circling around and I'm thinking I'm actually might land this time. This is Mint Mini. So you probably know about all the different Mint series games. These are little tiny games that fit in a little Mint box. So this is kind of the, you know, hook of the whole thing. Hey, you want to play a tiny little game that comes in a little Mint box? And you're like, I actually never thought of doing that. So, I don't know. And again, typically when you have these very small games or these these epic, tiny kind of games, it's, again, it's a coin flip. Because sometimes, like, they're able to pull it off. And that's awesome because you fit a great game into, like, a tiny little package. And sometimes it's like, yeah, no, this is bad. I paid for this. Like, this, uh, this, there's so much that can go wrong with these little games that it's always an issue. So these... Mint games have been actually out for quite some time. There's been so many different versions of this. And in fact, I I think right off the top of my head, I think what we have uh, five different versions of this. And in fact, you can actually pick up all five plus the new one 
in a full complete set. So that's one of the things that's the and the completionist in me is, you know, rearing its ugly head and being like, hey, you like a couple of these. How about owning all of them? And I'm like, mm, that doesn't sound great. But they're like, hey, you like these little mini games enough that maybe you want to buy them because you'll be able to buy the whole set and somehow they come in a metal lunchbox. So that's kind of cool, right? Right? Wait a second. Wait a second. I feel like I've been on this podcast talking about a similar series of games. Oh, uh, no, Wallet, that's not. Wallet series. And you, you gave me grief up and down, left and right, sideways about buying all those games. Is that what's happening here? Are you buying all these games? <laughs> you can't buy all those games, right? Isn't that the, the whole Wallet series thing? You can't buy them all? They're like, no, no, no. Just... <laughs> it's impossible at this point. It's impossible. That's what I'm saying. This at least is obtainable, right? Okay. If I purchase. <laughs> If I purchase the lunchbox, it comes with all the games, and then somehow that re- relieves the anxiety and I could sleep at night. I own all the games, right? As long as I don't produce any other ones. <laughs> but now for for those of you who don't know the mini games, there are obviously a lot of versions of these mini games. I've played a couple. I think Anthony might have played more than I have over the years. There's Mint Works, which is kind of your uh, worker placement kind of situation is mint delivery where you're actually delivering mints. Uh, that's a little, you know, out there. Mint cooperative. I have not played. I don't know. Anthony, have you played mint cooperative? No, I have not. Okay. There's also mint control. Sadly, another game I haven't played recently. You Anthony on that? No, I, I'll, I'll upfront. I could just say I've only played mint works and mint delivery. Uh, I love okay. mint works. I d- despised mint delivery and I haven't been too since because I really yeah. like that second one. Yeah, I'm the same boat. We played. I remember we played Mint Works together, and I yeah, really it liked it. And then Mint Delivery was like, "Hey, you were the first player, or you got lucky, and now you're just going to win this game." And just like, yeah. So it's like, hey, there are four others of these games. Do you want to gamble? Do you want to press yeah. your luck here? Because they're adorable. Come on, let's honestly, I'm buying them because they're adorable, and maybe and there's one of them that I know I like, and the and there's what I hate. And then there's the others, right? So I don't know. This new one, and again, I should I should I should be all professional here. The mint mini one is a really interesting concept. Not necessarily that it might be a, a good game, but on the idea that the mint mini game is literally, I guess they're trying to do like a little Mario Party kind of situation where you're basically playing a game that has a card from each of the other games. So you're playing little mini versions of the other games. So there's a little mini, there's one card. There's a mini version of Mint Control, Mint Delivery, Mint Works, uh, Mint Cooperative, Mint Bid, all of these kind of things. So it's like, oh, cool. You could just buy this game, get a sense, a little bit of a sense. I don't know if a full sense, of course, but like a little sense of the other games and then maybe come back and say, oh, I like that little tiny element of it. Maybe I want to buy the full size game. But in and of itself, I'm assuming, and again, I haven't played it, but I'm assuming it, it may not be enough of a game for you to be like, oh, this is really the great, you know, the great game I've been waiting for. I think probably the other ones that are more flushed out might be even better than this. But Mint Mini is currently on Kickstarter. There is a ridiculous number of different stretch goals. You could pick up the base game, at least the Mint Mini base game here for 20 bucks. You could pick up multiples, you know, obviously with multiple monies. And then, for again, for some reason, you could pick up all of the games with a lunchbox, which 
I never knew I wanted one until now. And now I want one. So (laughs) I don't know why that happened. The weird thing about this is that's not the top level. The top level is all the uh, tins and all the promos. So if you get the lunch box, right, you don't get all of the promos along with it. They didn't put together like a $120 version of it that had the lunchbox and the promo. So you have to buy the promo separately, unless I guess you have them, but weird. So yeah, that mint, is weird. mint mini. I don't know why. I don't know how. I think it's something you should take a look at, especially as Anthony and I said, we both really did enjoy it. And I believe we gave it um, the, the work replacement version of it, a very good review because we did like mint works a lot. That was a lot of fun. Mint delivery. I think we both hated it. So the other and the others. So if you've played the others, yeah. let us know because I'm trying to decide if I'm going to spend money on something that I know I like 50% of it, not the other 50% of it. And then the rest. So yeah, that's mint mini. All right. So those are the games that we're looking at and we're deciding if we should be backing. And again, you might want to back them. You might want to take a look at them. And again, of course, check them out. All right, Anthony, let's talk about the games that did hit the table and the tablet. And we'll let everyone know if those games are a buy and they should run out and buy those games as quickly as possible because they come with a lunchbox. If those games are a play and they should sit down and play them. If those games are dodge and they should avoid them because you got things to do, man, you know. Or if those games are the dreaded burn and like mint delivery, they should not be around. So, Anthony, what do you have up for us this week? All right. So I finally got to the table, uh, a game that I've been waiting to get to the table for a while now. Um, Cascadia. We talked about it last week. It was on the BGG Hotness. And it is it's a fairly abstract game. But, you know, it's about the different types of wildlife in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I'm from. So, you know, aesthetically and just in general, like I was excited about it for that reason alone. But getting it to the table and getting a chance to play it, both with a family and solo, I, I realized, like, I actually like this game a lot mechanically as well. So really quickly, how it works is, and the game is fairly simple. It's it's a two-weight game. It's very family-friendly. You have a big stack of hexes, and you have a bag full of tokens. And so you're going to have a tableau of, I guess, not a tableau, but a market necessarily, in front of everybody uh, of four cards or four tiles, I'm sorry, each with one token each. And they're drawn randomly from each pile. Uh, And so the tiles are going to have different types of terrain on them. So you have like, you know, fields and rivers and mountains and forests. And then you have the different tokens, which each represent one of the animals in the game. There's five different animals in the game. And then for each type of animal, you have a scoring objective for the game. And so it's going to tell you like, what type of shape or combination or lack of combination you're supposed to have in your finished tableau to score points. And so you take one combination of tile and token and you place it into your tableau. And that's your turn. The token doesn't have to go in the tile you just placed. You're going to start the game with three blank tiles in front of you. So you're always going to have three blank tiles to work with. And then you get little bonus tokens you pick up throughout the game that let you kind of break the rules and pick like, a token from here, like an animal token from one spot and a tile from another spot and mix and match. Or you could clear the animal tokens and get new stuff out of the bag. And so you just do this back and forth until everybody's had 20 turns. So you'll have a nice big tableau of 23 tiles and then you score it up. And so the base scoring is you're looking for like the largest groups of tiles of of the same type of terrain. 
um, as well as like who has the most of that. And then for each of the five scoring cards. And it's going to be different every time. So like the base game, I think it comes with five different scoring cards from each animal. And then the Kickstarter had a promo pack with one additional for each animal. And so there's six total. And so the combinations are pretty significant. Like you have a lot of different options there. Uh, the game honestly reminds me the most of Sprawlopolis, but like a bigger, longer multiplayer version of that. Whereas Sprawlopolis takes five, 10 minutes. It has 18 cards. Uh, you're going to play 15 of them and you build like your little city, it's kind of the same idea, right? You're going to score based on groupings of different types of things, and you're going to have multiple different scoring objectives that are different every game that you're trying to work towards. This is the same type of thing. This is a little more accessible because it's all in front of everybody. You're all working together. I mean, you're, you're it's competitive, but you're all working with the same information. And it's more colorful and, and tactile than like just 18 cards. Um, so like the kids got it. But it's also complicated enough that if you really want to do it well, it's not easy, right? It's kind of hard. And that was always the thing I loved about Sprawlopolis and Agropolis is you really have to like bend your brain and think out like, okay, I need hawks to be in certain locations, but they can't be near this type of animal and they need to be across from each other and I need this type of landscape in between them. You have to keep track of like four or five things at a time, which is really fun. So it's the kind of game that scales really well, where you can just throw stuff out and people build their tableau and you see how many points you all got. Or you could play it solo, like I do, and really try to maximize your score and like do the best you can. So I really, really like this a lot. Uh, if you, you know, and Sprawlopolis is one of my top 100 games of all time and one of my favorite solo games. This is that, but with hmm. more production value, um, pretty animals and vistas and yeah you look at it at first and you're like oh it's kind of abstract but that's the kind of game that this is so you're building a tableau based on a ton of different rules and trying to score the most points from it and i've had a lot of fun with it i played it like five times in the last week already so wow uh cascadia is a buy i don't think it's available yet uh generally but it's aeg is distributing it and we'll have it out there so i wouldn't be surprised if you all see it at conventions this fall so pick it up while you can. Nice. It's nice. That's great. And it's good to have a game that plays so well with so many different, you know, scenarios and situations and a game that's different. Like you said, it's, oh, very cool. All yeah. Right. Yeah. It looked, it looked like a generic nothing at first and then playing it. Like I bought it because of the theme and then playing it. I'm like, oh, this is actually really good. So I'm really glad about that. That's excellent. And again, you know, we'll, we'll get to this in a second. That's always been one of the, the the great things about board games, but always recently one of the sad things about board games is that the price points have, have gotten so high that you just don't get these games to the table because like, hey, maybe this is great. And I'm so glad you got to this table because it's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. And my daughter especially, she's six. Like, she's all about it. That's so. excellent. No, that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, I actually got a, a game to the tablet at this point because, as I said, we do listen to our listeners. And our friend Tim was like, hey, why don't you guys review some games you previously reviewed and got back out to the table? So I did that, Tim. Hey, Tim, I did a thing. So I got King of Tokyo back out to the table and also to the tablet. Once I found that it was on Board Game Arena, I was like, oh, cool. I remember this game that I loved a lot obsessively for for amounts of time where 
like I was trying to collect all the promo cards and I was trying to collect all the characters. And then at some point it just became like, just, it was just way, way, way too much. Like they just like, Hey, here's a new character. What is it? It's a standee. Awesome. It's like 40 bucks. I'm like, no. (laughs) So it it did become a thing, but King of Tokyo was a game we played way back when, when we had, we were at myriad games and it was a, it was a game that everyone got to the table because it was a game about giant monsters destroying Tokyo. So again, if you are a sci-fi fan or if you're a big movie monster fan, this was really your game. And then the mechanic again was very simple. Anthony, we were talking about before about 15 minute, you know, teach and play it's Yahtzee. Right. So, hey, you get a standee, you roll the dice, you do what the dice say. Right. Right. So it was very much the originator of the kind of quick and easy game to get to the table because everyone understood the basic underlying concept of it. But it had a really cool thing. And it was Richard Garfield, who's a genius of geniuses, uh, you know, and coming to board games. And I'm sure plenty of other things. And it was fun. And it was different. And it was a really big thing in my gaming career. I have King of Tokyo. I have King of New York. We've talked about this way back when. I mean, for me personally, King of New York is better because I love the kind of environmental things that come into play. And I think that's awesome. The expansion for this, the power-up expansion, just changes the game dramatically in the best way possible. It's an essential expansion because... If you've never played King of Tokyo, basically you have a monster, you roll dice, as I mentioned earlier, and you do a thing. Some of the things you do is get energy so you could buy cards to upgrade your monster. Other things you could do is roll claws, and that actually attacks other monsters. So if you're in Tokyo, you hit everyone on the outside. If you're on the outside, you hit the people in Tokyo. And then there's numbers. So the numbers will give you, you know, victory points, and whoever hits 20 kind of wins. But the hearts, the hearts are great. If you're outside Tokyo, because you need to heal, because this game is a king of the hill game. You can be eliminated in this game, but elimination is not a bad thing. It happens all the time. Multiple people can be eliminated at the same time. And it's still very fun because it's very much like dynamic and fun. And sometimes it's like it's the luck of the dice. You're not necessarily targeting somebody. Sometimes you just roll claws and that's just it is what it is kind of situation but if you roll hearts in tokyo you don't get to do anything because you can't heal in tokyo that became a thing for like five minutes so the expansion the power-up expansion allowed your individual character to have individual asymmetrical kind of powers and when you rolled hearts you could trade the hearts in to get a temporary boost or get a permanent boost throughout the game and it made it a lot of fun So this was a game that I still own, the base sets of both Tokyo and New York. Multiple expansions, definitely the power-up expansions. Rolling the big chunky dice is so much fun. And this is honestly the only game that I'm like, I'm actually happy to have the standees. Usually I'm not a fan of standees. This one, I am a big fan of standees. The artwork is cool. The monsters are big. I think there's even old pictures of Anthony and I like kind of hiding behind the giant monsters at one of the early conventions because they had the big cutouts of this. The BGA version's awesome. One of the things I forgot is oftentimes the best way to go is collecting a lot of energy so you could buy a lot of cards so that eventually everyone slaps each other around and you're just like, hey, I now have all these powers to do all these things. But every once in a while, someone goes hardcore or multiple people go hardcore and just attack everybody. And again, some of that's dice rolls. It's Yahtzee kind of thing. So you want to 
put together the best collection possible. This game has gotten a refresh, a reboot. They have a new art style. They have a dark black kind of version that has like this kind of like glow in the dark kind of colors to a little more sinister. So there is a version of this for the gamer. There's a version of this for the family. And there's just a casual version of King of Tokyo. I mean, they're all generally very casual. Uh, this still, strangely enough, is one of the games in my collection that I would never really part with because I do love the colorful, fun element of it. I do love how easy it is to get to the table. I play this with gamers, families, friends, and everyone seems to enjoy it. So if you haven't already, pick up a copy of King of Tokyo, especially with the expansion. Roll some giant, chunky, fun dice or go to Board Game Arena and play the beta version of this. It's still got some bugs, so don't go crazy. But uh, King of Tokyo, fun game. It's a buy. It was a buy back then. It's still a buy today. Love it. King of Tokyo, yellow games. Yep. Love me some King of Tokyo. Uh, my kids love it. And especially now that they can read, we get to play with the power-up cards. And now I love it as well. So. <laughs> there you go. There was a period of time there where we couldn't use those. I was like, this game's all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, the power-up cards, yeah. I mean, you want to use the power-up cards, and you want to use the all that kind of special stuff. It's a lot of fun. If you love those big movie monsters, you'll get a kick out of this. And again, uh, no regrets about buying this, but I, I did get off the bandwagon. I, I, I did stop purchasing the ridiculous expansion monsters, but yeah, I still do want them. But you didn't hear me say that out loud, so let's, let's just move on. All right. <laughs> So let's go on to our feature review. So our feature review this week is our meta version of talking about board gaming. So obviously we've been talking about board gaming for 342 episodes for over eight years. So conversation about board gaming isn't unusual or different or unique, but we wanted to talk about why board gaming, what is board gaming, and obviously everything that's occurred and how we can make the hobby better. So, Anthony, board gaming. Why? Huh? That's that's a. What am I supposed to do with that? What, what are you asking me, man? <laughs> hey, look, I went to graduate school and I studied existential philosophical phenomenology. You stuck with me, man. Roll the dice. Uh, see what you get. <laughs> man, I come on. I'm a writer. It's got to make sense. <laughs> we've we've done 342 episodes of this, and I'm like. We probably still haven't answered this question. That's why we're doing this episode. So I don't have anything. No, I mean, board games, for me at least, it's it's many things. It's a social activity with a construct to it, which basically ensures some amount of social interaction on a regular basis, mm-hmm. which can be difficult, especially, you know, in my case, it I first got into this hobby when my son was like a year old, and it was very, very hard to make friends and meet people. Um uh, it's remained the case as my kids have gotten older. So um, at the same time, it works the brain. It's engaging. It's tactile. It's not digital. Everything before that was very digital. So I'm on the computer all day. At the end of the day, I play video games at night. I watch TV. This is not that. It's very analog. Mm-hmm. And all of that comes together and you have like this whole subculture that we've discovered, obviously through the podcast, but even before that, where you know, obviously there's thousands upon thousands of games, many of them I own, but also <laughs> like the different mechanics that go with the games, the different elements of collecting the games, the painting, the inserts, the, you know, the building of different things, the 
custom tables that you can purchase, all these different things that come into being in the board game hobby. Like any good hobby, there's layers upon layers upon layers that you can get engaged with. And it's more than just like a thing to fill time, which is kind of, you know, most of my adult life before eight years ago, that's my impression of board games. And it it changed pretty significantly, you know, around the time that you and I met, because that's Mm -hmm. when I was like, I need a hobby. Hey, look, this is a hobby. I'm doing this now. (laughs) Oh, Margaret, I'm doing this now. (laughs) Yeah, I, I guess not to repeat some of the things you said, Anthony, but obviously coming out of video games, which is, you know, back in the day as, as a PC gamer was a very solo hobby. Obviously yeah. you got to play with people online, but you didn't really socialize and being a bit of an introvert to, to start with not, maybe not the best thing possible. And also, you know, it's hard to get an activity that people do want to kind of engage with in a meaningful way. And whether you're a teenager or a young adult, you know, a lot of that kind of social activities is usually kind of like around drinking. Um, mm. If you do that, you know, whatever. I'm, it's not not I'm not downing that. But again, like you have these great friends. You want to do something cool together. You want to engage with people. And games allows you to do that in a really fun and meaningful way. And there's so many different games. So there's so many different types of experience. But it's a way they, as an introvert, you can connect with other people and yet feel that you're not burning out your social battery and that you're engaging with them in a way that is fun, right? And there's a different, a variety of different experiences. You could have a real boisterous kind of shouting, screaming, jumping up and down, or you could have a very contemplative, like four people just looking down at the table. And I have so many pictures of that. (laughs) <laughs> that were just staring down at the boards and like people are like, are you having fun? I'm like, you had no idea how much fun we were having. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see from our faces, but we are having the best time ever. So a lot of that just comes from the board gaming hobby. And it, it was one of the things like I've always had board games, but at some point, especially with Myriad and and getting involved with a lot of geek groups, I think from w- being like in movie groups to you know, board game groups, because after the movie's over, what are you going to do? How about playing a game? Oh, there are geek games. There are games about sci-fi and fantasy. And also, like, of course there are. And they're great. And they're complex. And they're fun. And as you get older as an adult and you get smarter, you learn other stuff, too. And the obviously, the fun thing, obviously, beyond the podcast, which we've talked about last week, but is also, like, I've learned about a lot about life. And I've learned a lot about how to approach certain things, whether it's logistics, something I would never have known. Or economic systems, again, something I would have never known. And it just gave me a lot of feedback and smarts as far as moving forward. And, you know, I used to play Texas Hold'em all the time. This gives me kind of more of a complex kind of situation. So board gaming as a hobby, as a thing, relatively still, and we'll talk about this in a second, kind of still cheap and accessible. Uh, Still relevant to this day in this age. Like it seems like looking forward and looking at other gamers who are older than myself. It's still a thing that they love to get to the table. In fact, it probably even works better as you get older. You know, maybe as you get a little less physically active, it's still great. But there's obviously other things too. Like we talked about, Anthony, like groups, right? You've made a lot of friends in a lot of different places and gaming has allowed that to happen, which is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like in, in past lives, I would make friends in a variety of different ways. Like, but it gets really hard when you have children 
right? It's especially if you're in a new place where you don't know anybody and you don't have existing relationships that will survive having children. Uh, it, it's difficult to go out and meet new people when your kids are really young. When they get older, it's not as hard. Like they're in daycare or preschool or school or whatever. But when they're really little, it's difficult. And board games were the way I kind of overcame that because you don't have the challenge of, you know, hey, we're all going out to do this very complicated thing or we're going to a bar, like you said, which is not really compatible. If you're, I'm going to be up till one in the morning with the baby, but we're going to sit down for two to three hours and we're going to do this activity. We're all going to have a lot of fun and then we can all part ways and no one's going to think it's weird that you left. Right. And that was the thing that really captured me. I was like, oh, cool. It's like friendship and relationship building without so much overhead that I don't have the emotional or physical energy to do at that point as a parent. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of carried forward because, you know, I still have kids. They're older now. Obviously, I have a lot more time and I can go out and I've made friends and I've been able to go out in game days and play Twilight Imperium and do all these big things. But at the same time, it's still flexible, you know, to, to, and you don't think of it as flexible when you're in the hobby. You're like, Oh, these games are long. You have to like settle in. There's like game nights and everything, but it really is like, I would hang out with friends in Pittsburgh and we're like, all right, I have time from like six 30 to nine, right? Cool. We'll knock out this game. It takes about two hours. And that was it. We'd hang out for a couple hours and everybody would go their separate ways. And we'd all feel happy that we got to see each other and hang out and do something. And it didn't have to be like a whole thing, like where somebody left early and everybody's like, oh, you're lame because you're busy. Um, and so it's, it really facilitates that nicely. But at the same time, it's unique in that it kind of carries beyond that, right? Because we have like digital elements of it. We have the conversations about it. We have everything that happens after the game. Like you're not just playing a game for two hours and going about your life for the next, you know, six, seven days until you see each other again, you talk about the game you played, you give each other grief about who won or how they won or whatever it might be. Like there's all these different layers to it that help you build relationships and create friendships that you don't necessarily have. If like you went out to see a movie together, you're not going to talk about that movie you saw for the next two weeks, but you might talk about that person who stomped you <laughs> in a board game and how they did it for a couple weeks. And it becomes funny. Um, hopefully if you have the right group of friends. Absolutely. And, and that's been the same for me as well, meeting new people and groups and, and just having an accessible way. I mean, I, as we get older as adults, I mean, I think it's easier as kids because or even even as college students, because you have so much in common and you're physically around each other and you have more free time. And then going to these game groups and just like, you know, I've you and I, we've run so many of these game groups, especially me. I've run so many of these game groups. And then just have like a random stranger walk up and go, what are you guys doing? And that's it. They're playing games with us. And that's it. We don't, you don't need to check any ID or any information. They don't need to bring a game with them. If they come to a meetup, if they walk up to us, I mean, we display our games. We display the boxes. We want people to play. And that's fun. And we bring new people to the table. We can bring their kids to the table. Um, A lot of relationships were made. A lot, even some marriages were made through board gaming. So again, it really allows a lot of possibility and it's, and the bandwidth is, you know, far and wide. And again, that's why the, the bad stuff hurts us so much because this hobby and board games in general does so much good. I mean, back from like our earliest days of maybe Candyland or something like that, where it still just has a warm feeling in all our hearts or a great game of Uno 
you know, or just endless number of games at the table. These are all fantastic. These are all fun. And I'm, and again, still thankful for it and really love the hobby so very much. So let's move from board gaming. We get it. It's awesome. It's fun. Let's talk (laughs) a little bit more about the other stuff that goes on a little bit here. So Anthony, um, turns out these board games that we like so much, every once in a while, they cost a pretty penny and most of the time, you know, a mortgage in some cases. Yeah. Yep. They're, they're expensive. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. Cause occasionally I think back to the first game I bought, which was a travel edition of Catan mm. at uh, myriad games along yeah. with flux money Python. Cause I didn't know anything about games. And I was like, Ooh, Catan. I played this online with my friends in college. Sure. And Monty Python. I don't know what flux is, but Monty Python. Right. And then I still have the Monty Python Flux, which I've not played since, but I cannot make myself get rid of it because it's the first game I bought. Mm. But then I think about what I paid for those. Right. Sure. I think there were $10 and maybe like 20. Totally reasonable within the budget. Not a problem. And then I think about the most recent games I've purchased, you know, in 2021 and how even a basic insert upgrade expansion you know terraforming mars the big box was a hundred dollars just some bits in it you know i have my suburbia collector's edition sitting up here mocking me it's on my shelf i've still not played it that was like 175 dollars for all the stuff that's in there i've got a nacrony infinity box which is actually fairly affordable but with all the stuff in there combined it was like 175 dollars and then i'm like wait a second, when did this happen? When did these board games start <laughs> as much as the PlayStation that I stress about? I know. That I spent, and like, and the video game side, I spent months being like, do I really need a PlayStation? Am I going to play it often enough to be worth buying it? Yeah. And then I eventually, you know, you buy it and whatever, and then you look at your board games, you're like, I spent triple that on board games in like six months. That's <laughs> like, fantastic. What am I doing? Um, and these games that you play like once or twice, and then they sit on your shelf for months. So, yeah. This is the part of the hobby I don't love, uh, especially, and I think right now it's worse for me because I just moved. So I went through every single game I owned, cataloged them all, got rid of a bunch, put them in boxes, and then took them all out of boxes. And I'm like, why did I bring this with me? Sure. <sighs> I never played it. That's why. And I paid yeah. for it. That's exactly. why I still have it. Yeah. As you said, I, I think if if we go back eight to ten years ago and we look at the board gaming industry and even obviously further back, these idea of these hobby board games was such a niche hobby and was such a outside collectible that with few exceptions, these games were, you know, so were priced fairly, if not, you know, to your benefit. And they were designed by designers. And that was an unusual thing. And, and you know, growing up as a kid, you used to see these things like in really weird places and stores that, why are they have board games here? I don't understand this board game. What is this Axis and Allies thing? This doesn't look like Risk at all. How am I supposed to play these things, you know? And remember like buying those games and trying to read through the rule book and going, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. And obviously those are not those, those are not games you could play solo, but those were unique games and those were games that if you did purchase at some point, you kept on, you know, kept them, you know, and once we, you know, we did the the podcast and we started collecting games as, as far as 
it was about the hobby. So you purchased the games to play the games. And there's like, there was always that question. And I, I think we talked about this last week was the first idea I had in my head was these games would be for lack of a better term, like evergreen, right? You'd buy the game, you put it on your shelf. It would always be available. It would never go out of style. It would never be unplayable. And you wanted a game that had great replayability because this way you could say to yourself, the the $40 that you spent on the game, you'll be able to play 100 times. The reality, as you said, Anthony, is that you don't play the games 100 times. Sometimes you don't play the games at all. That's something a little different. But obviously, the cost has gone up exponentially. And this is not just, just normal inflation. It's jumped for so many different reasons that we've seen. Map, pricing, uh, Asmodee kind of moving in, uh, you know, companies, you know, buying each other out, becoming larger, smaller companies dropping away, uh, less games being sold, but bigger games being produced, expansions being attached to the base games and the prices that go with that. So back in the day, we were like 40, 50, 60 bucks for a board game. Is this, you know, this is too expensive. Like, I'm not getting a great game here. This is not great. And now we're looking at 100 bucks, you know, 120 because you have to buy everything. And it's just like, <gasps> I remember when the games were much cheaper and I used to complain and now they're much more expensive. <laughs> and I'm just like, right. <laughs> when did that happen? And we were here. We were recording the whole time. So... Yeah, it's it's an ever increasing price, and I and I think Anthony, like I mentioned before on your review, it's kind of sad because unlike video games where you can get a quick you know playthrough of the game, you could play a demo version of it these days. A board game is never going to get table time unless it could be fully purchased. So you have to make that financial investment right up front, not knowing how a game plays. You could read the rule book doesn't mean how that how that game plays you got to play the game so the ever-increasing price of games i do think has hurt the industry because good games are not getting to the table small publishers are disappearing because again a 60 dollar game is still an investment and if it doesn't get to the table or your group doesn't like it it kind of disappears and there's been so many financial reasons beyond inflation that's caused that so anthony speaking of of one of those reasons why board games became really expensive. Have you ever heard of this Kickstarter thing? Have uh, you heard of it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I heard of it. All right. Tell, tell us about make, this Kickstarter thing that, that uh, people... You're going to make me talk about Kickstarter? Okay, fine. I mean, I can talk um, about Kickstarter, but... No, I can do it. I mean, I can do it. I have... Like, let me pull it up. I have 209 oh, no. backed projects to date. So... <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, let me say. Let me uh, see. Maybe, God. Maybe 10 of those are not board games. Uh, I, I have definitely dropped off a lot in the last year, year and a half. We talked about this recently. I, I don't think we did it on the podcast, but we were trying to like pinpoint the moment at which we both stopped backing the big miniature games. Yeah. Because for a long time, I backed a lot of those. Yeah. Like I have all of the Arcadia Quest stuff, which is stupid because I don't play it. I have Batman, Gotham City Chronicles, the whole first season of that. I have all this stuff. Like, I it's all in the basement right now because I have like my little painting station down there and it's just all sitting around there because I'm like, I'll paint it eventually. Um, and it was around the time of Starcadia quest, maybe around Gotham city Chronicles where I'm like, what am I doing? I'm never going to play this. I'm never going to paint it. Yeah. So I stopped back. Them. 
But Kickstarter in general is designed to do that, right? It's designed to get people excited about a thing that they Mm -hmm. know nothing about. Sometimes you have no rules for, you have no background for. uh, And there are exceptions. Like a big thing that's happened lately is like Euro game producers are using Kickstarter for their expansions, which I think is brilliant because in the past, they would produce an expansion, release like a thousand copies of it. It would go out of print six months later and you could never find it again. Mm-hmm. But now they make, you know, 10,000 of them or whatever on Kickstarter. And there's plenty to go around, which is great. Right. So we both we both got the Grand Austria Hotel expansion in the past. That would have been really hard to find. Yep. But other things, bigger things, expensive things <laughs> are out of this world. Like the Batman stuff was like 300 bucks. The Arcadia Quest stuff was like $250 for each of those Kickstarter campaigns. And now they've gotten more expensive. I have not yeah. backed one of those miniature-based you know, uh, Kickstarter campaigns in like a year and a half, two years now. Yeah. But they're four or $500 sometimes yeah. for all the stuff in them. Like It's the reason I didn't back the new Eric Lane game from Simon. I was just like, I'm not spending $300 on another one of these games I'm not going to play. Yeah. So... It's it's a it's a good thing in some ways. It's a bad thing in other ways. But Kickstarter is basically half the hobby at this point. At least it's at least half the hobby. And if not, I mean, and when we say it's half the hobby, we also have to take in consideration the gravitational pull of Kickstarter. You know, even if it's not the complete hobby, it's like Asmodee. Like you can't ignore the fact that they're so large and they dominate and they control. And even if they don't try to, they do. So, uh, I mean, for myself, Kickstarter was this really weird, fun thing. This the, the general concept of this, especially early on, and I used to do a Kickstarter podcast called Kicking the Habit, was the idea that people could crowdsource, crowdfund their games or other activities and projects and things like that, just like any kind of like art project or writing project. But they could do that for board games. So board games that normally would not get to the market could get to the market. And I used to cover so many of those small games. And it was really such like an underdog kind of situation. One of the fun things, the best things about Kickstarter was following a project and helping it financially succeed so it would get to market. And there was a lot of those games early on that was so much fun to read the updates and so much fun to support it and so much fun to be able to back every little bit of it so that it would eventually get to the table. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I think especially early on in Kickstarter, the way that they had the stretch goals were they had stretch goals because they needed to have stretch goals and they had stretch goals because they wanted to give you more content and they wanted to reach their goals. And it was like, look every day or every week. It was a great thing. And then at some point, as you said, Anthony, it just became about, let's box up and package up literally everything that we could ever possibly think about to stick in a board game all at the same time. And Kickstarter is most, I don't know if you would, I don't know how you, I don't know which way you go on this, Anthony. Is it, is it superior or is it amazing because of its ability to market the games or for the actual ability to have people purchase the games, right? having a uh, a portal to be able to do that because that's something that companies hadn't historically had up to that point. Yeah, I, I think it's both. I think yeah. we get some situations where a game could not exist without Kickstarter, right? We have 
Gloomhaven was that. Uh, Seventh sure. Continent is a good example of that, where the game could not have existed because it's so expensive to produce. Yeah. Right. And that's amazing. I wish there were more of those because, mm-hmm. and I back those things sometimes when I know, don't know if I'm going to play them because I'm like, well, this wouldn't exist otherwise. I should, I should be part of it. Right. Um, but at the same time, you also just have accessibility. Like some people, especially with Kickstarter, it's global most of the time. So, you know, we're in America. Most of these games come out here eventually, like, in the ones that don't come out here right away, they're in Europe and then they come here later. Uh, like the the age of games coming out in Europe and never making it to the United States is pretty much gone at this point. And there are millions more people around the world who didn't have that luxury, right? They didn't have like big companies locally that could distribute things. And Kickstarter makes it so if there's enough people who want to buy something from Brazil or the Philippines or, you know, Egypt or wherever they would find a way to get it to them. And so these it becomes global distribution. And that's really cool as well. So that's a thing that you didn't have before. And people have more access to things yeah. that they maybe wouldn't have had in the past. Um, I guess the biggest problem that I have with it is just the FOMO issue. Because you sure. have access if you have the $100 the moment that game is on Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> because if you don't have the $100 then, let's, you're like, oh, I don't have the money right now. Maybe I'll have it in like six months. And they don't have like a $1 pledge level Mm -hmm. too bad. Like if there's no late pledge, if you can't come back later, or if you just can't afford it until it would have hit retail, you're out of luck. And especially if like companies like CMON, which take a game and break it up into 50 pieces and half those pieces never hit retail, you're never going to get the complete game. You're going to get pieces of the game, maybe even a very small piece of the game for a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. that, that bothers me. I don't like that. Um, just in general, like, and it, it makes me want to buy things that I wouldn't otherwise buy, which is also, I feel like I'm being manipulated, which is not great. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of the ugliness of it in, in that kind of way. And it comes out in a lot of different ways. And obviously we, we, we probably need to mention the exclusive nature of some of the Kickstarter, uh pieces or promos that have caused endless number of problems in secondary market kind of situations and then how companies have like supported the secondary market then not supported it and then reprinted it after people paid all that money i mean there's been i mean we could spend days talking about kickstarter there's so much good there's so much bad and then there's just a lot of really random ugly stuff and then I don't know. It's been a challenge. So, Anthony, you want to you and and the listeners out there want to guess my number since since you already gave out yours. <laughs> um, you're more discerning. You're you're very definitely more discerning on this. I'm going to mm-hmm. guess 115, 49. <laughs> oh man, you were way more discerning than me. Jeez, yep. 49. <laughs> All right, 49. All right, you just made me feel terrible. <laughs> Hey, look, we don't, we, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't number shame here, man. It's, it's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's guess, all right. I guess that's why you come to my house to play games. I don't know. <laughs> hey, I, I have, I have ridiculous Kickstarter collections too that I, I, you know, we hide in the back all the time, but yeah. Yeah. I, and I also have a giant wooden crate, but let's not, let's get, not get into that oh, right now. Oh yeah. You've still bought the most expensive thing. That's true. I like, did. I can't argue with that. <laughs> no, I did. I certainly did. And I don't regret it. So Yeah. <laughs> Kickstarter does have some good to it, and I and I love that game. 
Yeah, so collecting generally, Anthony, you mentioned FOMO, and and that's you know been a real thing for a lot of people, and that's weird because again, we talked about earlier the greatness of how gaming groups really connect you to people and really give this wondrous kind of experience, and then you find out about these other games and you feel like you are somehow missing out if you don't buy it, right? If you don't back it or you don't buy all the pieces. And I remember early, really early on, like hey, I bought this game and I waited until it was on sale. But then for some reason, I paid $5 for a promo card. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, what was I thinking? Like, there's a deck of like 50 cards. This is going to go in a deck and never be seen again. And I spent five or 10 bucks on a thing. So that was always kind of weird about the hobby a little bit. We talk about acquisition disorders, games we want to get to the table. Again, not bad, not good. It just is what it is. But the completionist side, Anthony, right? Yeah. Collecting all of the things. All of the mm-hmm. things. Yep. No, it's not fun. It's not great. And <laughs> it so, was. Like, it was for a moment. It, it was. It is when it's ex- accessible, right? When you mm-hmm. can do it reasonably and it's not crazy. But then you get companies like Simon who just break the whole system, mm-hmm. right? You can't collect all this stuff without spending hundreds of dollars. Yeah, like, and so we both missed that initial Arcadia Quest Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. This is my best example of this. And then we we got in on Inferno and we've backed everything since, right? So we have all the stuff up from there. But going back and finding all the bits and pieces from that first Kickstarter is very expensive because not that many people backed it and they didn't produce sure. that much of it, which is what they say. Except they keep having more of it, so I don't believe them. I think they have more in the basement somewhere. But <laughs> it's, you know, and or like we've gotten review copies of some games from companies like Simon or others, you know, and it's just a base game. And then I'm like, oh, I really liked it. And I'm like, oh, now I want to go buy some of this stupid junk on eBay because mm-hmm. I want to fill in the, the box. It is frustrating, you know, and certain companies make it easier than others. They're like, you know, we, we release a promo every year. You can pick it up. It's not too hard to find. And then you get companies like Portal Games, for example. Robinson Crusoe is the one I always go to, where they have dozens and dozens and dozens of promos to the point where they released an entire box, like their mystery box or whatever, that was just full of all the promos they had done, plus like upgraded components. And then they went and did like a crowdfunding campaign afterwards on GameFound, where they're like, yeah, you get that stuff. And then also this other stuff, at which point I was like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. You guys are killing me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the problem is the companies know. They know that they can keep getting you to come back. They know that you yeah. can keep you know, getting you to dive in on this stuff. So there are certainly games that I've collected everything of, but I've really tried to like stop myself from doing that at this point because I don't play with all of it. You don't see all of it. It's in the box somewhere. And it's just it like gets under your skin if you're missing something. Yeah. And I think that was one of the situations, especially that Kickstarter kind of contributed to it. It's not Kickstarter's fault, but one of the situations it certainly contributed to that those promos became more and more of a thing. So it wasn't like a single card for, or a convention giveaway, but it was like part of these games. And I, and the other side of that too, is you would complete, you would get all these pieces, but then a lot of times again, because of Kickstarter, a lot of these things weren't play tested. And, and again, maybe yeah. you accept that as a promo situation or, hey, I got this new character or this, you know, miniature or something like that comes with these powers and it just blows the game away. Like it's it's right. it's not working. So you want to collect it all and it's fun to collect things all. It's fun to catch them all. Right. That kind of concept. 
And that was more obtainable and reasonable, again, before Kickstarter, but also, you know, that was always a thing, right? If you didn't go to a convention, you didn't get the thing. If you didn't do it, you weren't in a competition, you didn't get the thing. So there was a financial challenge to getting those things, but it was fun. And if the secondary market wasn't a nightmare, and again, I think that's one of the reasons why, Anthony, you and I kind of stayed away or left the magic <laughs> market because oh, that was God, one, yeah. yeah, that was one of those situations. <laughs> CCGs, my friends, don't do those things, right? Like, you know, I, I it's just you're talking about crack and cocaine and meth all in the same kind of uh, <laughs> hobby. Like, yeah, it's it's a thing. So. Yeah, it's it's a thing. It's an it's it's again. I have some collections of things. I enjoy them. I have other things that are not complete. Bugs me a little bit. So that's always a thing. One of the interesting things about collecting always is how do you store these things and all the oddities that come along with it. There, we've done some of these podcasts about some of the oddities, and I think it's definitely something to check back because they're really fun. One of the oddities, I guess, that often comes up is like storing these games, putting these games away and like I, how Ikea kind of came to the rescue and the Kalex become, became a thing and how do you can place all your games mostly neatly in, in a situation that was somewhat affordable. So um, Ikea awesome. Uh, and I guess, I guess that one of the other companies, at least early on that we, that Anthony, you and I dealt with without even knowing about too much about the company Plano, Remember all the Play-Doh boxes, all the plastic container boxes we used to put with our board games? Yeah, Play-Dohs are funny because I never got into it, mm-hmm. uh, but obviously I've, you know, engaged with it and experienced it because everybody else uses them. I just, yeah. for whatever reason, they bother me. So I'm just like, ah, bags are fine. <laughs> so. The Play-Dohs were a thing for me. Like, again, I remember like watching Board Game Geek and they were like, hey, there's a Play-Doh box on sale at like... Home Depot or something, or like Dick's Sporting Good. And I remember I was in Dick's Sporting Good, and I'm looking at this basically a tackle box. And this guy came out, this random guy came over to me and was like, Hey, I work here. He's like, You don't want that tackle box. Like the metal's going to rust on it. And I'm like, I just look at the guy. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> because <laughs> I was not buying it for fishing. I was buying it for probably like X Wing or Star Wars miniatures or something like that. And that was one of those things where it's like, could you find a scenario like with Ikea, like with Plano boxes or like little hobby kits or something where, or, you know, like little gem kits where you could kind of store your board game components. Again, this was primarily before all of those different inserts kind of came out. And then more recently where publishers actually started making board game box, you know, holders and storage collections in a really meaningful way, instead of just like, it's an empty box, or it's a giant piece of plastic with a hole in the middle, and you throw your stuff in there. But yes, I I think that over the years, Anthony, I was resistant to the plastic bag. But yeah, I think the plastic bag has won out, although it still kind of drives me crazy that you can't find a great plastic bag, because Turns out there's different millimeters and you have to figure out what size bag. So you, now you have 600,000 bags of all different sizes. And <laughs> I'm, I'm really getting crazy with this. And I'm not really feeling good about this. And this one crinkles and this one doesn't. This one can write on it. This one's two inches by one inch, but I need a three inch by a two inch. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a that's another drug dealing situations where you're purchasing little bags for things that people normally wouldn't purchase bags for. 
But uh, yeah, I have several hundred little plastic bags for some reason. If no one knew any better, they would think that I was in some criminal situation. But Ikea, Plano, bags, sleeves, dear God, let's not even talk about sleeves. We have a whole episode on to sleeve or not to sleeve. I'm that's just that's a rabbit hole you never want to go back to. But Anthony, let's wrap up with one of the most challenging things about board gaming and the hobby in general. And that's the FLGS, the Friendly Local Game Store. Do you remember a Friendly Local Game Store? Does that does any any of those pop into your head by chance? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's how we got our start, right? We uh-huh. were at a Friendly Local Game Store on Staten Island, Myriad Games, um, and then there were none for a long period of time because it's it's hard, like game stores. They struggle. A lot of them are magic only. A lot of them, or maybe not magic only, but definitely magic focused because that's how they make their money. That's exactly but right. Myriad was great. Uh, I remember spending a lot of good time there. And then I did find a pretty decent store in Pittsburgh, which is, is great. If you're in Pittsburgh and you're in Squirrel Hill, check out Games Unlimited. They're really good. But it's rare. Stores like that are rare because you need the base of customers to support selling those kinds of board games at that kind of scale. You need the people there who are passionate about board games to talk about them and understand them, which is a challenge we saw, um, not only at Myriad, but other stores that like people running the stores or working there didn't necessarily know what they were selling. And then you need to have, you know, the sense of what's coming out and when it's coming out and what people want to buy and when they're going to want to buy it, because it's a fast moving hobby. There's new games out every week. So a lot of companies struggle. A lot of stores struggle especially outside like the cafe model. And, you know, that's where we started, but that store was only around for a year. So, uh, you know, since then it's been a little tougher to find a place to kind of call home. Yeah. I think, you know, getting into the hobby and hearing about the friendly local game stores and having everyone tell you about them and wanting you to support them and, and obviously not just mirrored games, but so many different game stores throughout the years to attend and support. And then over the years, they've just disappeared for many reasons. Some of that is Kickstarter's fault. Some of that's the industry fault, not selling games or providing games to them. Or as you mentioned, Anthony magic, right? Magic is, is their bread and butter. It keeps them coming in. Board games are a little harder because you buy a board game and now six people are playing it for one purchase price. So there was always that kind of like, tension right it's a lot it takes up a lot of space to play a board game very small space to play magic and we are lucky to have those board game stores out there because otherwise those communities would not have fostered and flourished as much as they did but they've also been problematic places where certain groups of people have hung out and if you are getting into gaming and you just and you and i have dealt with this anthony like you you go to these game stores and like you are not welcome and that is not the friendly kind of game store that, you know, you really want to have. So over the years, board game companies have looked for other models. They've looked for other game spaces to play their games. And we have seen the reduction, if not the complete loss of a lot of those, you know, mom and pop stores out there. There's been board game cafes, which kind of popped up, but they have not made the impact as much. But board gaming is still happening. And I know the dream is still alive for a lot of people out there, and we certainly want to support them in in those dreams and and that kind of financial support because 
they're still great places to play and you know they love board gaming as much as we do if not more so yeah so why board gaming i don't know it's given us so many different things to take a look at and uh, obviously there's been so much good and the good generally and tremendously outweighs the bad of it and the ugliness of it sometimes and there's a lot of oddness which is <laughs> which is also could be very good but yeah, I, I think it's a hobby that, that continues to be a thing and a, and a bigger thing. And I look forward to it growing and getting more people to the table and more support. And I'm glad to be part of the industry that helps that grow. How about you, Anthony? 100%. Yeah. Not, like, I didn't used to think of us that way. But over the years, obviously, we've become much more involved. We know a lot of people in the industry. We work mm-hmm. with them. We talk to them. We bring them on the show. And... You know, it, it's fun not only to be part of those things when they happen, like when the industry grows or changes, but also just to be able to talk about it and know all the various people involved and, and what they're going through and how they do it. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's going to be the end of our meta meta episode. Uh, we'll go back to the normal kind of stuff next week, but hopefully this has been enjoyable to you for these last two episodes and Again, if you like anything new added or changed or brought up, we're happy to bring that to the table for you because, again, board gaming has been great to us, and we're so glad to have you join us at the table each and every week. So until next time, this is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. And as always, whether it's the meta version of it, the real version, the practical version, or the oddness of it all, we're always absolutely positively saving you a seat at the table. Until then, my friends, take care. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.